Rose's call reminds us of all the ways that Native people and settlers have looked at the same object but seen totally different things. And Thanksgiving is a great example of that. Peter, I think it's finally time for dinner. We finally arrived at the point in the show when we actually get to look at that original Harvest Festival back in 1621. Why don't you go ahead and set up this last interview? Well, Jimmy McWilliams is a colonial historian down at Texas State University in San Marcos, and he told me that the birds and critters and roots and berries that the Indians would have brought to the Thanksgiving table, the very things we think of today as classic Thanksgiving cuisine, well, these foods would not only have struck the English as exotic, they would have struck them as downright nasty. It wasn't unusual to eat squirrel, and this was something I think that they would have probably not been thrilled to eat. Venison, they certainly would have been uh, familiar to eat, but it's also important to keep in mind that the venison in in North America would have tasted uh, very different. And I think, you know, the other emphasis would be on corn and a lot of things that had to be be foraged. And I want to also stress, it wasn't the taste necessarily that would have bothered them, but it was the the manner in which these foods were acquired because the emphasis for the English was to acquire their food through traditional English methods that stressed sort of a human control of the environment that they felt the Native Americans didn't properly have. I I wonder about hunting. Uh, Since, of course, game parks were kept in England where the Aristos could uh, bag a deer, uh, didn't they usually right. eat it? Sure. Uh, what happened to those deer? Yeah, it's, it was certainly hunting in England, and the context is what really matters. I mean, the yeah. context was a leisure. It was a you know, it was a sport. It was something you did in the off hours, mm-hmm. and sure, you ate it. But these uh, aristos also had access when they wanted it to domesticated beef, and you know, the Puritans arrived in the New World with a set of very stringent cultural expectations. I mean, they wanted to be the city on the hill. And the last thing they wanted to do was to kind of, quote-unquote, devolve into, uh, you know, quote-unquote, a savage state. And if you had to go out and actually hunt for your food, you know, if you had to dive into the woods out of necessity rather than for leisure purposes, well, this could easily be interpreted as a sign of of cultural weakness or decline. And I think these... um, Settlers, when they looked at the Wampanoags grabbing their arrows or grabbing their guns and running off into the woods uh, for most of the day, they thought, well, wow, they're incredibly lazy. They should be home tending <laughs> crops. Instead, you know, it is their women who are working in the in the fields. Let's talk about corn a little bit. Uh, yeah. Corn has got enormous uh, cultural significance. Yeah. So the English, you know, the Puritans, when they arrived in New England, of course, were were very familiar with corn. Generally, it was feed for farm animals in England. So, you know, the the Puritans show up and, of course, they find that the Native Americans are growing it as more or less one of their staple foods. You know, that was jarring in and of itself. And I think, you know, this is an observation on the part of the Puritans that we really need to pay attention to because a lot of times as we try to explain the failure of Native Americans and English to create any sort of biracial society, you know, a lot of times we just immediately look to race. But, you know, I think if if you, if you look at the example of corn, I think there's a case to be made that it was, you know, agricultural practices and, and food that played a really important role in creating basic cultural differences, or at least the perception of basic cultural differences. But there's one more point to this, a connected point. It's not only the corn itself that I think influenced the way the English looked at the Native Americans, but it was also the way that they grew the corn. Native Americans had this agricultural method where they would clear a plot of land by girdling trees and burning the soil. The trees would die and fall. The ash in the soil would sort of work itself deeper into the topsoil. 
And then they would just throw the seed in. And they would throw corn seed, beans, and squash. And these crops would grow up together. And it was a remarkable arrangement because the corn provided this natural bean pole. And the beans worm their way up the corn, and the corn leaves would provide shade for the squash. And it was a kind of botanical orgy. <laughs> but, the, you know, the Indians, of course, this worked. It was incredibly productive. It was not particularly labor-intensive. If weeds came in, they let the weeds come in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here you have this sort of black, charred land with trees all over the place and these yeah. crops sort of crawling all over each other. In the right. English, it looked, again, look looked nice. at that, and they said, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what a disaster. Where are the fences? Where are the nice lines? furrows, yeah. you know, where's the the land without weeds growing on it? So the English, as you described them, were incredibly anal. Uh, they yeah. practiced monoculture. They separated things. They were great at distinctions. Mm-hmm. What's a fence anyway? But a way of making mm-hmm. a distinction. Whereas right. Indians seemed to be promiscuous and they mixed things together. And how could they be a civilized people? You're right. I mean, that was the perception. But there clearly was a sense, initially anyway, that the Native Americans could be incorporated and assimilated into English society. And and interestingly, one of the basic ways that you know, some of these Puritans began to assimilate Native Americans was to give them cattle to domesticate. And yeah. I think that is an important reminder of just how culturally significant the act of controlling animals was to the English. I mean, if we could just get the Indians to control their animals, well, then that's half the battle. Right. And get the guys out of the woods and back into the fields doing the proper man's work, which is having a miserable old time plowing up the earth and, and well, growing the Well, the advantage there was huge. I mean, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You pull them out of the woods and suddenly this land becomes available in some ways. You know, you, you can then acquire it and you won't have Native Americans hunting through. Hey, that's uh, convenient, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Yeah. So when and how did bagging deer and other wildlife become something essential to our ruggedly individualistic way of life? And when did people mm-hmm, overcome mm-hmm. the notion that eating trash food was a bad thing to do? Well, I think this sort of cultural emphasis on the frontier and on hunting as being a sign of self-sufficiency, I think that became a positive cultural image yeah. when the burden of trying to emulate the English was lifted uh, Interesting. shortly interesting. after the American Revolution. The American Revolution really changed the dynamics fundamentally, I think, yeah. because it created yeah, this true. imperative that you have to kind of redefine now your culture. We cannot emulate the English. Of course people did, but I yeah. think as the nation expanded west, as people moved to the frontier, there were these new expectations that could, instead of being looked down upon, could now be praised and somehow pointed to as a source of an American identity. So it's a bit of an irony that yeah, the yeah. dependency on hunting that they criticized, say, in the 17th century and the early 19th century actually became an element of what it meant to be an American. Homemade food, yeah. country cuisine. Jimmy, you've given us some fascinating insights into one of the key moments in American cultural calendar, Thanksgiving, and we're grateful to you. Oh, this was fun. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. Jimmy McWilliams teaches American history at Texas State University, San Marcos. He's the author of A Revolution in Eating, published by Columbia University Press in 2005. 